A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. I hope you all got out a bit at the weekend and I hope the sun on your face and a bit of vitamin D gave you a lift. We're really looking forward to our storytelling evening this Thursday at 8pm. We'll be listening to women tell their stories of overcoming challenges they faced and got through in the end. Uh, we'll have that podcast for you on Monday, March 8th, which is International Women's Day, a day to celebrate. And a reminder that tickets are on sale for our third season of The Big Night In. And it starts this Saturday night with former President Mary McAleese. I can't wait to be doing something on a Saturday night again. And we hope to see loads of you in the audience for that. Now, for today's episode, I spoke to Trish Carney, a former swimmer and Olympic hopeful with the Trojan Swimming Club in Dublin in the 1980s, where the now notorious coach George Gibney was based. For a seven year period from the age of 13, she was sexually, mentally and emotionally abused by George Gibney. She never told anyone about the abuse, which happened sometimes twice daily. Now, recently, many of you will have heard her voice as she took part in the Irish made BBC Sounds podcast, Where is George Gibney? A 10 part series which investigates the former swimming coach. And now she has written a really wonderful book called Above Water, telling the story of what happened to her, the fallout in her loving family, her path to healing and her message of hope for other victims of abuse. Parts of our conversation may be difficult for anyone who has suffered similar abuse. So we just wanted to let you know about that in advance. But I do think that this conversation is an important one. One of the things I really love about doing this podcast is that we have the space and time to give people more uh, time to tell their stories. And sometimes you watch chat shows or other programs and people get 20 minutes because obviously there's lots of time constraints and we don't have them, which means we can really let a uh, an interviewee breathe and tell the story in a, a really a, quite a different way. So we hope you enjoy that. I'm in awe of Trish Kearney after speaking to her, really. And I'm so happy to bring you this conversation in the book. Trish talks about her life in before and after terms. She means before and after the abuse. And I began by asking her about the happy, carefree child she was in the time before. Trish, thank you very much for coming on the Women's Podcast. Now, in the book, which is brilliant, by the way, I absolutely thought it was so well written and so well crafted. When you look back on your life, you say that your life is in two distinct parts, before and after. So before is when for 13 years, you say, I lived wild, free and innocent. Happiness seeped into my soul. I learned to laugh and live life to the full. But I want to hear first about um, the before. So tell me about Patricia Cahill in the before times. I'm very good. Well, um, Patricia Mack Cahill. Okay. Uh, yeah, I know, uh, which is kind of that a wee bit rarer than the, the Cahill. Um, and I suppose it was something I was always very proud of over the years. But anyway, um, I was I was uh, living within uh, my own family home. I uh, had brothers and sisters. I was the second last in the family. 
And uh, I uh, I would, you know, we all look back with rose tinted glasses, but I actually really did have an idyllic childhood. You know, it was before mobile phones. It was at that stage in life where, you know, you were hunted out of the house in the morning. You came back when you were hungry and then you were hunted out again and you came back in the evening. And then once St. Patrick's Day came, we were allowed to stay out in the evening as well. So I, I really relished and loved all that time. Um, where we lived in Dublin, we lived on a housing estate as such, but there was an awful lot of green fields around us. There was an area just above us we used to call Paddy the Farmer's Field. I don't think Paddy or a farmer lived in it, but as far as we were concerned, he did. And uh, we just, we were rambling. It was just a really, really lovely time in my life. And uh, uh, even with my siblings and that, like we we just, it I've just felt it was a, a kind of an idyllic setting um, with mum and dad and the, the family. It was as good as I think anyone could have it really. And tell us about your first forays into swimming then, because that was also a happy, ex- joyful experience at the beginning too. Oh, absolutely. Like when, when I started swimming, uh, myself and Michael went to, uh, to swimming lessons at four and that was an absolute unmitigated disaster. We hated it. We were terrified out of our minds. And so we, uh, it was the happiest day ever when my mother took me by the hand and said, right, we're never coming back here again. And I, I just thought, hallelujah. But I did have a, a, a friend who was swimming in, in a lovely swimming club called Atter Swimming Club and so um, Orla my friend kind of coaxed me to come when I was about seven and that and I did and I I, ah, oh I just such a different experience to when I was a child and actually it it really had a huge impact in me even in later life because I became a swim coach and all the lessons I had learned of what I hated as a young child I brought forward with me as a coach like and I didn't push kids into the water and I just you know, it, 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 it affected me forever, really. But I, I went to Otter and I met a, a wonderful um, swim teacher there, Louise Kennedy, and she taught me to swim. And I suppose realistically, I picked it up very, very fast. Looking back, um, especially having been a coach myself, I can see now the type of young swimmer I was. You know, they were there one day, one week trying to learn breaststroke kick. And uh, she just said to me, oh, you go in, just do 40 wids breaststroke. Um, And I didn't realise at the time that that was something that, you know, they were barely able to swim across the width and I was flying over and back. So, you know, you could see early on that I, I, I was probably, you know, kind of above average anyway at it at that stage. And uh, it, it just it I kind of really clicked. And then once I went into competition, oh, I died and went to heaven. I just it ticked all. I was a highly competitive child and uh, it ticked all the boxes um, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. So tell me about joining Trojans first then. Uh, even ever before joining Trojans, Trojans had started. Um, George Gibney had moved from Glenalbyn Swimming Club and he had set up his own swimming club, which was Trojan. And um, I, it was literally down the road from where I lived. So uh, from that point of view, it was a very attractive club. But also when he set it up, I had quite a large number of very, very talented swimmers moved with him to Trojan. So it wasn't like a fledgling club. It it became a very big club very quickly. And I was in this tiny club that had become non-competitive. And I used to be watching all these young swimmers who were my age and maybe older. And they had this huge 
gang of people at galas and I was sitting on my own with mum, you know, and uh, it, it kind of, they they began to uh, talk to me and be with me. Now, and we would know each other through the galas anyway. But, you know, subsequently I realised that it was Gibney was, you know, pushing them in my direction to to get me to join. Um, and, and that would be fine, you know, uh, lots of clubs would, co- would coax people over to the other side, especially when there was nobody within their club. But in hindsight, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely adamant that, you know, George Gibney had me in his sights ever before I joined Trojan. And I finally joined Trojan uh, when I was 13 years of age, just as I began secondary school. Now, there's a very, um, well, a lot of the book is very moving, but as I said, very beautifully written as well. And you describe the moment when everything changed. And I suppose I, I said about that before. Before and after, and you talk about that moment up on the diving block at age thirteen. Mm. Could you tell us that um, story just to, to signify that moment when your life for the next seven years became a very different one to what to that happy, carefree existence you'd had? Yeah, I I think you know the the, the big thing about it is that in the moment I hadn't a clue. In hindsight, I do now. You know, literally bookmark that as that was it. That was the moment. Because what happened was we were at our usual training session in an evening. Life was full of fun. There was absolutely nothing in my head. Um, we were getting our coaching and George Gibney was starting us on the block. And I happened to be the last one, say, you know, in the, the deep end to be called. And he didn't signal me to go. And I kind of was wondering why not. And in my own childish head, I thought as he began to walk towards me, gee, did I did I miss my turn? Is he going to be given out? What's, you know, and I, I didn't feel it in a sinister way. It was just what I was thinking. And he walked right up to the blocks and the blocks I would have been. I wasn't I was a, a kind of a, a smallish child anyway. And so he walked up and he isn't a tall man either. So he was only like chest high and he came really within what would I would now consider, you know, too close for comfort. So and he just looked at me and he he said, um, I'm going to go to bed with you this weekend. And then a split second later, he turned, shouted, ready, go. And I dived in and but my head was kind of in a spin, not so much with what he said, but trying to figure out what what did he say? Did I hear him right? And I swam the length and I I kind of tried to get my head around it and as the days and and time went on you know I kept saying no that is what he said but I didn't understand it and then as I say you know it really was no length of time afterwards before you know the abuse um became fairly systematic and I think I I can't fully remember but I think the reason he said it is that we were either going on a trip away or we were going on an international I'm not sure which and that's obviously how premeditated he was he had his time planned um for for what he was going to to get up to and I think you know um, I, I'm sure I know that you're, you're on the other side and have done so much healing and I'm sure it's difficult. So I do appreciate you, you know, talking about it even even all these years later. Um, but, you know, I think for paedophilia and people who operate in this way, what you just said there is so interesting because of the premeditation yeah. and also the way of making it sound very everyday to you. Mm-hmm. He was telling you something in the midst of your normal existence, doing the swimming, almost just throwing it in. And and sort of saying this is going to be now part of yeah. of your life. It's it's just that cold, callous, cruel kind of um, the way people operate in these situations. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a sick mind, and you, you know, it was it was uh, as I say, definitely well premeditated on his part. 
Can you talk a bit about the kind of person he was? Because obviously there is the um, the abuse and we'll talk more about, you know, how it went on over the seven years. But if you were to think back about George Gibney now and you were describing him to somebody, what would you say he was like? Oh, I, I don't think he was a very likable person. I, I mean, looking back, even people at the time, I don't even think my own parents liked him. Uh, people respected him. People... Um, and I think people uh, feared him because he he had an aura of power around him. He had a very distinct, clipped way of speaking, um, you know. And if anyone's ever heard him speaking, um, you know, the the Where's George Gibney podcast, like, oh, you'd you'd be freaked out just listening to his voice, you know. And that that kind of it wasn't a friendly way of chatting, um, you know, and. He had huge power in in everything, in in control. He had a lot of control of an awful lot of people, and and I would say it 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 was you know it was a bullying type of control. You know he bullied parents, he bullied the people he worked with, he bullied. Um, yet it wasn't bullying like we would people wouldn't even have realised they were being bullied or manipulated. He was a master manipulator, um, and uh, you know he got he he had a tremendous amount of knowledge. Off, off swimming and so there was very few people would question him but and then he had what the aura of a respectable life you know so you know he he was able to hide in plain sight and he had the reason he set up Trojan as far as I know is that he was he was getting into trouble in Glenalbyn with committees and that and so he set up his club in Trojan as an absolute dictator and no committee Nothing of any sort, just Gibney. He decided who came, who went, who did the sessions. He he was answerable to nobody, which is phenomenal when you look at today's world and all the safety checks. Nobody. Trish, can you tell us a bit about one of sort of an average day in this awful chapter in your life in these seven years? Because I know it was a daily, sometimes twice daily uh, situation for you where he was abusing you and also you were in this bubble, this swimming bubble, because you were such a high achieving young woman as well. I mean, you, I mean one year you got 10 goals in the internationals and you were an Olympics sort of candidate. Um, tell us about the day and when it started for you and how it would go on when this abuse was, was happening. Uh, well, I would get up at about 10 to 5 in the morning. We'd be in the pool for 20 past 5. So that was all a rather quick dash. Um, but even sometimes when you're in the pool, you know, you might be taken out of the pool and, you know, he might abuse you within a dressing room or whatever. And, uh, you know, so uh, you weren't you weren't just allowed train, but nobody would know that. And then maybe going home after he might, uh, if I wasn't getting a lift, you know, maybe during the summer season, you'd uh, be cycling home or whatever. And he might, you know, come up the road and maybe even put your car, your bike into the car and drive you off somewhere and then afterwards you'd end up going home and you know there wouldn't be that much attention paid for you being maybe half an hour later coming home because you know it was the summertime um or uh it could be that I was going to school and uh he would drive down the he would just appear as I was driving as I was cycling to school and uh, I I would end up missing the first class of school and there would be no you know, coming, uh, kind of nobody would be checking in that you didn't turn up at school. Like I get a text now of my children don't turn up for first class, but we had a different world back then. Uh, it could be at lunchtime, you know, that uh, I, I 
would always go home for lunch, but there would be days I'd, you know, he'd say, don't go home for lunch today. And, you know, or it could be the evening um, before or after the sessions. Like it was, it, it was, it could be at any time in any given day. There was no pattern. It could be going to babysitting. It could be during babysitting in the middle of the night. It could be before going training in the morning after babysitting when you'd have stayed over in his house. Um, it could be coming from a gala. I'm telling you, there was, it was just bizarre. There was just so much. And just to, just, you know, to be, to be aware that there were other girls at the same time. So like you would think if you're just listening to me and what I was experiencing, oh my Lord, you know, what sort of a, a crazy loon was he to be that <laughs> sexually active? But it, he was just going from girl to girl to girl. Um, and that's, that I find that just unreal to to think of. And just to say, you mentioned babysitting there because you babysitted for his kids. Yeah. And sometimes stayed over and he would come into the room where you were and he would abuse you. And yeah, it could be in the changing rooms in 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 the swimming pool or it could be. Yeah. Or in his office. Or when he took you, you in, when, he, to- when he told you to in his office, when you when he told you to throw the bike in the car, when you put your bike in the car and then he'd drive you off somewhere then and. And it would happen then, say, in a secluded place or somewhere like yeah. that. Yeah. And this, Trish, was your life. And meanwhile, you know, achieving at the swimming and everyone thinking this is great. Trish is getting on brilliant. And you had this massive, yeah, massive suppose, other life. Yeah. Within swimming, I, I had changed. I had been a very, you know, like my life of before. So I was very chatty, outgoing, um, loved fun um, and quite quickly I began to change from that girl into a, you know, a very careful, uh, guarded individual because, you know, he was always watching. He'd stand at the top of the lane. Um, I was extremely good friends with Gary O'Toole and myself and Gary had a had a wonderful friendship. And, uh, you know, he kind of made a, an, a, a very concerted effort to to finish that friendship and to drive a wedge between it. And, you know, even even afterwards, like, you know, you're speaking today about the amount of uh, of the regularity of the physical abuse. But honestly, in my world, in my lifetime, in my memory, uh, that comes way down the line compared to uh, what George Gibney did to me as a person in changing my personality and in losing me my friends. Because uh, what he did to me, you know, physically, I, I could parcel that, I could deal with it. But I found it extremely difficult to be this this quiet, uh, guarded child when everything in me remained a bubbly uh, child who loved to laugh. And I'd hear their jokes and I would so want to 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 give a, a retort or to reply back. And I would just sit there quietly. I wouldn't laugh. And, you know, inside I it, that, I found that very, very difficult. As I said before, it was like, you know, other people being at a party and you just looking in the window. It was very, very lonely. And uh, that that to me was was just the, the absolute cruelty of the abuse. Um, as I say, I could live with the with the physical um, acts, but I found the rest of it uh, a torture, to be honest. Trisha, it reminds me of what you wrote in the book, quoting Burr, I think, is the other woman's name who's a victim. Yes. And she said about, she always wondered as a child, and it started with her at age nine. He started, like you say, there was, there was many others and she was one. And she was nine years of age when he started abusing her. And she said that I always wondered what had he squashed and killed in me? Who would I have been? 
who was the person that she would have been had he not done that. And I think that's what you're talking about there. Yes. And I I can remember listening to a a man on the radio one day and he said that he looked at his picture when he was a small boy and he used to cry because he felt that child was murdered. And I, I, I can remember just thinking, you know, where what was his headspace? Because I think in that sense, I was I was kind of lucky, if you can use the word very, very uh, kind of, I don't know, loosely there. I, I feel that I never felt I lost that girl. I just felt she was a cute devil that knew when to hide. But I was so confident inside of myself that I was still that girl. And, you know, years later, when I got a reference from my school that said I was a quiet girl who, who found it so difficult to make friendships, I was furious. But of course, that's because that's what everyone saw. But I still didn't believe that that was me. I never lost her uh, inside me. She just hid away. She was she was cute enough just to to keep her. You know, if you're 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 at a family gathering and there's a mega row going on and you just think mm, I'm staying well out of this one. Um, I think that's the way I was a little bit. And that's why I remained so angry at at having to be like that, that I always knew there's more of me in here. Just people couldn't see. Tell me a bit more about Gary O'Toole, because he, he looms very large in the story for a few reasons. <laughs> and yeah. I know he's he's thank goodness he's now a good friend of yours again. But you did lose his friendship. And again, that was true. George Gibney, who didn't like the fact that you were developing this very close friendship with Gary. And Gary, obviously, this is another amazing swimmer who's now a brilliant doctor and very crucial in the whole story. Tell us about that friendship and what happened. Well, I suppose Gary, Gary, as I'm sure anyone who's younger is delighted to say, is younger than me. And uh, <laughs> so he was a year and a half or so younger than me. And uh, so like, but being being a swimmer, you, you're you're kind of quite a mature individual because of the training, you know, kind of matures you a lot. And uh, so the two of us had this just lovely friendship. You know, I was 13, 14, 15, say Gary was 11, 12, 13. Babies, very young children. There was never a, a proper relationship as such in it. We were just, you know, I, I, I often say to my gang, you know, if you watch the movie My Girl, we were, we were just that two kids that loved hanging out together because we shared a huge amount of of uh, the same personality. We were incredibly driven from a swimming point of view. We were um, workhorses. You couldn't kill us, the two of us, you know, um, and we we loved the, the challenges of of actual training. And isn't, I've tr- co- or t- coached many kids over the years. There's not a lot of kids actually love the challenges of, of training, but we did and we were great pals. And, you know, we'd ha- like we'd hang around afterwards and Gary lived, you know, a distance away. But during, you know, one particular summer, we, we spent a lot of time together. And as as teenagers then do, we, we had a lovely friendship. And then without my realising it, like Gibney had begun to to abuse me. And I suppose to a degree, maybe Gary and some of my other friends were a wonderful defence for me at that stage because he hadn't driven enough of a wedge between me and them. So without them realising it, they were actually like my watchdogs. They were around me. But anyway, the, the summer came when I was about 15, when, you know, Gary went away on his own with another swimmer. And Gibney didn't go with them that summer. And uh, that was the summer really that the friendship 
was was put to bed, so to speak. <laughs> There's a choice of words. And uh, um, so, uh, but, you know, when Gary was in America, I continued writing all these letters because, like I said, I, I continued to be the girl that I always was when Gibney wasn't around or when, you know, as often as I could. And so then when Gary came home after getting all normal kids' letters, you know, I'm sure they were the most boring things ever, like, you know, and... Uh, he came home and, and he was only maybe 13, 14, not even that. And he uh, he couldn't understand what had happened to me. You know, I probably had only sent him a letter the week before and now I won't even talk to him. And it went from there. So from that point of view, you know, uh, the kids are very resilient that way. And, and uh, you know, Gary just moved on eventually. Trish isn't my friend anymore. Um, so he got his own friends elsewhere. And I... I presume looking back you know he he would have been very hurt and and not understanding what was going on and on the other side I was very hurt understanding what was going on so it was it was a very sad time as two adults looking back now I I think it must be heartbreaking to just see in the distance those two young children and and Gary just personified you know he was the person that that really marked those changes but all my other friends it was the same for all of them I was losing them all in time now they they did continue to be very good to me but it it was it was a, a dreadfully sad time just take us back to that day when Gary did come back because there was an incident of abuse that morning, wasn't there? And you were dealing with yes, that. It was, it was actually further on. It was um, we went to the the uh, one of the main championship galas and uh, Gary was home. He was kind of pumped after being to America and all that. And he actually didn't swim very well. And normally if we didn't swim well, we would have always, you know, kind of bolstered each other after a after a race and, you know, nearly talked it through and sort of said, well, the turn or this or, you know, or just kind of encouraged each other for the next race. And so Gary was getting none of that. And I was swimming out of my skin. I was swimming so well, like who it just shows, you know, how can you be performing so well when your life is shocking? And so between events, between the sessions, there was one event and we went back to the, the hotel or whatever and I or wherever we were staying or there was some event and we some place. And anyway, uh, Gibney happened to come into a toilet when I was uh, about to go into the toilet. And I, I can remember just, you know, pushing him away and all that. And sure, he wasn't he wasn't taking any of it. And, uh, you know, I, I was uh, attacked and raped in that toilet. And then, you know, you just carry on and I was you know very shocked and upset because uh, you know it wasn't pleasant and uh, I was swimming then that afternoon and uh, I happened to come along uh, and I could see Gary coming towards me and I I turned so to to avoid him because I could see over on the other side of Gary coming towards me was George Gibney staring at me and, uh, you know, the oh, I was terrified, really, of, of George Gibney's look because I knew everything about his look was saying, you know, that I wasn't even allowed to talk to Gary. He did not fear that I would tell Gary what had happened. He just didn't want me even to say hello to him. It was nothing to do with what had happened. And so I about turned and then Gary caught up with me and, you know, we had uh, crosswords. Let's just say Gary kind of you know, was absolutely within his rights to say, why are you being so horrible to me? Like, why are you not talking to me? And, you know, I don't even know what I said, to be honest, Roisin, but I just, I can remember just in my heart thinking, oh, can't you just see? Can't you look at me? Can't you see? But that was only in, inside of my heart. I wasn't able to say any of that. I'd say all Gary was, was got from me was just a, you know, 
well, whatever. And I left him. I, I don't even know what I said to him, to be honest. Oh, Tricia, you speak so movingly as well about your family in this book that it's a really, it's a gorgeous love story of your mother and your father and your brothers. And there's a, just a gorgeous family dynamic. And, uh, you know, all the way through, I kept thinking how sad and horrible it was that you, you, even though you were in this really loving environment, you couldn't find it to tell them, to tell them what was going on. You were so scared and you were so in a, in such a terrible situation that the people you loved the most who loved you, you couldn't let them in. No, no. I mean, you know, uh, like, I think that's that's the the thing in the book is just, you know, that I did come from such a loving and lovely family. Like my father was just divine, you know, he was just anything and everything that a dad should be. And he adored all of his children and he showered us with love and care. And and I suppose that's that's where I came from. And that's that's all I knew. And then this man came into my life and was all that that my dad was not. And I didn't have the words for it. I didn't have the understanding of it. Uh, as I say, I was I was at least a year into it before I even knew what he was doing to me. Um, and uh, I, I didn't know how to get out of it. And I suppose it's not even I didn't know how to get out of it. You know, I was never going to get out of it. I didn't know there was a way out of it. Um, I couldn't see uh, how how I could get out of it. And um, whilst Gibney never closed any doors and locked me away, uh, he did padlock me out of my life. And he 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 closed every single element of 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 escape within my mind. I, I never saw it. And as, as I've said before, like if I had even opened my mouth to anyone within my family, um, th- this would have been very, very swift, swiftly dealt with. There would have been my my dad, I think, personified, you know, the difference between him and people of that era. My dad was ahead of his time. He was a loving and caring, hands on father. He wasn't just a man who went to work, came home and my mum would say, your father will deal with you. In our house, my mother would deal with us. My dad would never, you know, never be the one that would have been the man to to give out. And so uh, I just I just never told. And I think, you know, it's also important to say, why did nobody ever think to ask? Because that says a lot. That's because nobody thought to see these things. You know, I was a moody teenager. I don't think I was spectacularly moody um, because I was happy at home. But I was lost and uh, there were no red flags around. There was, as as I've said before, there was no child abuse in Ireland. There was nothing no. to worry about. <laughs> and you we know? were, you know, when you think of all the other things, the horrible tr- trauma that was playing out all around the country in various different institutions and with various different scenarios, all under the carpet, all people who couldn't tell, all people who had to keep this awful, awful secrets to themselves. I mean, that was the era, that was the times we lived in, wasn't it? Oh, it absolutely was. You know, I mean, you, you, if even even when you do think, Roisin, that when we did tell, and it was so obvious that we were telling the truth, that, I mean, grown adults in all sorts of areas of responsibility said lies. So, you know, I, I, I was, you know, if from my own family point of view, I would have never expected them to say lies. But it wasn't that. It was just I didn't have the words to, to tell them. And I didn't I didn't it didn't occur to me. Now, you say and you say it very well in the book about this 
sense that you had no way out and you've just said it there that this was going to be your life really I mean this this was your life and this was going to be your life and an almost an acceptance of that but I suppose a couple of things happened um you, you know you got a bit older you you met an amazing man which is yes. a lovely love story as well and I love that you met him on your way off on a holiday and he was getting the same bus and he was on crutches and he became your husband Eamon in the end but meeting him and then going off to study nursing those two things seem to kind of uh, signal the beginning of the end. Tell us about that. Yeah, they did. I kind of finished swimming because I didn't make uh, the pre-Olympic squad. I just missed out on the pre-Olympic squad and I um, I was nursing. So like... What was George know, Gibney's reaction to that, uh, Trish? You not that, making that the was, squad? Um, I, when I didn't, I didn't make, I had, what I don't say in the book is I had left night duty and my father was in coronary care. And I went and said goodbye to dad and he gave me a lovely hug and he just said, do your best. And I went by train up and I suppose in my head I was beginning to think, oh, my God, you know, if anything happened to my dad. So I was reevaluating life as such. I mean, your and dad had up, motor neuron disease at, at this point. He did. Point he didn't and have he, it at that stage. Oh, he didn't have it he, at he that stage. He hadn't been okay. diagnosed, but he right. was, he was, his his health was failing and he was only 50. And it was to and do with that. It was obviously the beginnings, but you didn't know at that the point. Beginnings. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it was the beginnings of his, of his, of the, the whole motor neuron disease and, and all of that. And, uh, you know, I kind of, there was a part of me fearing I was losing dad, that he was getting unwell. And I went to, to Belfast after my night duty shift and I went up and I missed out on my qualification. And uh, I went for my feedback off my coach, George Gibney, and he just kind of, oh, he and he could be so horrible. And he just said, well, I hope you enjoyed your breath because it cost you the Olympics. And I had taken a breath just as you finish. And any any swimmer will tell you, you know, oh, dear, you didn't do that. But I did. And uh, well, you remember you I, just come off an, a, a night shift in a hospital. You oh, yes. Slept. Yes. I, had... I, yeah. But uh, it was tactically it was a very, very poor thing to do with a, a split second to go. It does. It does make the difference difference in points of seconds and I did miss out by a short, very small margin but it, it was it was everything it was just the nastiness of the way he dealt with my incredible disappointment and I can remember literally in that moment just what leaving him uh, you know realizing you're not going to go to the Olympics Trish it's over and realizing at the same time oh my lord I hate him I absolutely hate that man and uh, I remember I got the bus or the train back down home and, you know, I suppose the contrast of hating Gibney and feeling all of that hate for all those years that obviously I, I was inside me and and that love for my dad and realising I'm out of here, I'm not going to swim anymore. And I didn't, I didn't go back to the pool after it and I did finish swimming and, you know, George Gibney at the time just obviously couldn't cope with the whole that I just walked away. And that's when he really, you know, he continued to stalk me. Um, he was at my my wards and nursing. If I finished my shift, he was outside at my car. Outside Vincent's um, Hospital where you were working. At St. Vincent's Hospital, yeah. It's just incredible yeah. to think about it again. Like he, he was there all the time. Yeah. And again, it was in plain sight. Did I tell anyone? Did I tell my friends who were walking to the car with me? No, I would just say, oh, I forgot something. And I go back inside and I go in the underground over and then get up to the nurse's home. Because there was an underground, you could get up to the nurse's home. My own best friends right beside me, um, you know, and I didn't tell them. And if anyone did see, you know, I kind of excused it away, made kind of 
said something different. So it was uh, it was terrible. But then, look, I, I decided to go at the last minute on a holiday and I went with five girls on a holiday and we had a ball and I met Eamon on that holiday. And, uh, and you on know, that holiday, was that when those flowers arrived or was that? Yes, a- yes, I was I was on the holiday and next minute uh, the girls, I came back to the apartment and the girls said, uh, oh my gosh, Trish, look what's come for you, look what's come for you. And it was a big bunch of flowers. And the second I saw them, I knew who they were from and I hadn't told him my apartment. I hadn't told him where I was going. Where was the holiday uh, again? It was in Limassol in Cyprus. He and, had sent uh, flowers to a apartment in Cyprus to show you that he knew where you were. Exactly. And told, on the note was, don't enjoy yourself too much. Don't enjoy the holiday too much or I, mi- I miss you. You know that. Um, so, you know, but it, it wasn't it wasn't the message. It was it, it was everything that those flowers were saying. You know, you, there's no escape. You're you're mine, you know. And uh, I had been having an absolute ball on the holiday, knowing that there was no sight nor sound of him. And that was the thing, too, that um, the minute I was on that holiday, that girl that hid, she she came out and that other one was nowhere to be found. You know, I I absolutely became the person I always was. In fact, I was talking to one of the girls recently, Orla, who was on that holiday with me. And she said, you know, even when she told the other girls that I was going on that holiday, they were kind of a bit dubious. They were going like, oh, no, as if like, oh, this party poopers coming with us. And uh, like we we had a ball of a holiday and uh, and, you know, they discovered I wasn't that person. Um, and then when I met and Eamon never met that other person ever. So uh, and except day, there was thankfully. that moment when you shared your first kiss and that was quite traumatic for you because this would have been the only other, you know, person to be oh, intimate yes. with you. Like so it was quite traumatic. It was, it was. And, you it was know, a beautiful at the time, setting, you were looking out it. at the sea, you know, you were young, you were only, what, 18, 19? 19, 19, yeah. 19. Oh, it was ever so romantic. And you romantic. met this fella and you were mad about him. And tell yeah, us what and, happened. And yet, even though I was on the back of the moped, you know, heading out, there was a part of me uncomfortable and yet loving it. And I just thought, oh, you know, I'm a bit jittery because I did fancy him like crazy. And uh, then, you know, we, we stopped and we had that moment and I, I went... You know, kind of. Oh, we. If if you knew Eamon now, anyway, you'd you'd understand why it, why it hadn't been. You know, he'd built up to it for a while. I'd say he. And uh, anyway, we had this lovely, you know, just a the briefest of kisses, and um, I instantly felt very unwell. I raced away round a corner. Thought, oh my lord, I'm going to throw up. Um, I roared like, don't follow, and uh, I I kind of caught myself. You know, eventually caught my breath I wasn't actually sick and I went back to him and he was there are you okay and I was saying yeah yeah and I thought like it was my dinner or something like that but you know in hindsight and as time went on even I knew it it was the memories of you know the only other kisses I'd ever had kiss my Maria um was uh, you know the 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 absolute horror of Gibney and beard and glasses and ugly face and and that all you know the, I couldn't marry the two um you know when I when when myself and Eamon got together and in fact one of my one of my one of my children uh, said to me uh, recently um like but what did you say to him like you know did you ever explain it and and Eamon came in at the time and and she said dad did she ever explain it to you and Eamon goes uh no and, uh, you know, so it wasn't even something that 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 bothered he him. He remembered particularly. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, listen, so when was your last encounter with him? Because he was doing this stalking. Then you met Eamon and that was a great, you know, beginning of a relationship, which is still going on now. Yeah. Um, but he did keep trying. And then there was a there was a last encounter, wasn't there? Yes, there was. We um, I was nursing and he was waiting outside in the car. And I said I couldn't go to the car because I, I wanted to go home to dad. My dad would have been very unwell at that stage and in, in, in the bed full time, really. So I went by bus Um, I kind of sneaked out and I went by bus and I was waiting at the bus stop and his car pulled up and there was other people at the bus stop and he kind of said, oh, you know, get in. And uh, he leaned over kind of the passenger side and he, you know, was pushing open the door and I was at the back of the bus stop, you know, and I was sort of saying, no, no, it's fine. The bus is coming. And but I was very conscious of everyone going, is she getting into that car or not? You know, that kind of a, a thing. And anyway, I uh, I didn't I just as I don't know I just got into the car anyway rather than tell anybody at the bus I don't like this man and uh, or worse yeah yeah exactly and um, and I I didn't want any of that confrontation and sure the minute the door closed I just thought oh no what have I done and it was probably you know it was very different getting into that car because. I was an adult now. I was in a relationship with Eamon. It had been a few years as such since I'd been in a car with him. And I I, ne- I didn't feel like a child. I felt like an adult and I felt way more frightened than I did as a child. And uh, he didn't speak. Um, and that brought back all the memories of him not speaking many times in the car. And I didn't speak because I had learned over the years, you know, don't don't bait him, just and I was the only things I did kind of say as we got near home was I need to go home. I need to go to dad because he would have known my dad was sick, I think, at that time. And anyway, we just drove on and he drove on up the mountains. And I I with all the stalking, I had honestly thought over the, the previous year that he would he would maybe kill me at some stage that I just it it it, it wasn't that I, I thought every day, oh, today he's going to kill me. But every now and then I did think he might. And I remember there was a case in, in uh, I think it was the north and there was a mother and her daughter um, killed by a boyfriend. And, you know, I fully understood it because I thought that's what he could do to me. And no one will ever know that why he did that. You know, they won't understand. But I thought now as I was driving up, I thought, you what an idiot. You've thought about it now for the last year and now you've presented yourself on a plate in the car and and nobody, no witnesses and uh, I was very frightened. And, you know, I think there's an animal instinct in us to protect ourselves. And so I was on edge, but I knew I couldn't get out of the car as such. But I was kind of definitely uh, fearing what was going to happen. And then eventually we stopped up the mountains. He undid his safety belt and he, he locked the door. And the, the click of the door, you know, um, that really frightened me. It, it kind of it gave me the start of of that mad adrenaline rush that I had been suppressing the whole way up. I'd been suppressing all my emotions. And then he reached across and sure, I, I knew he was. Uh, he had said, oh, I, I miss you. I wanted to talk to you or something along those lines. And I just, uh, he laid a hand on me and I um, absolutely lifted him out of it. And 
I was a very different person. If if George Gibney had attacked me that day, it would not have been the childhood rape of my uh, that I had known. It would have been a very different crime. And I, f- I feel I would have had a very hard time recovering from it because it would have been different for me personally. But anyway, he didn't get, get within a, a hair of me, I'd say, because I, I battered him. I absolutely went for him. And I... I I really thought, you know, I'd often in my head been thinking how much I hated him, how much I, all the things I'd like to do with him and to him. And I, I think that moment I thought, yeah, I'm going to do every one of them. I was very violent. I And he backed off. And I, I don't remember the whole encounter. I remember my rage and violence. And I remember him backing off. And I don't remember us driving away. I don't remember coming down the mountains. Did he did he throw you out? Did you get out of the car then or what? I got out of the car, but not up in the mountains, because I think, Roisin, I'm what, I would have remembered having to try to get home. So he must have driven you just have blanked it out because it was obviously such a heightened yes, moment. Yes. He must have driven you some bit away and then yes. left you out somewhere yeah. else. Kind I, of thing. Or, yeah. or else I got out somewhere else. I And I have often tried to to remember it. And I suppose now I don't bother trying. I just think, well, no, what, sure. what do you need? You don't need yeah. to know it anymore. But I got out safely and uh, he never came back. He never came to my life. And even the stalking, you know, lessened after that. Um, so life life did change. I, I never stopped looking over my shoulder, though. Yeah. And you went down to Cork to, to start your family and to be with Eamon and this other life. It was good that it was a distance away. And obviously your dad died of motor neuron disease. And that was a very, very, and he, you describe him so beautifully. He just sounds like an amazing man. And uh, and that's such a sad story. But you were away out of Dublin. And I imagine that probably helped that bit of distance from all where all of that stuff had happened. But you didn't talk to Eamon about it either. You kept it all in. And it's only when a letter arrived yeah. Um, now, when when uh, when Eva was born, my um my first child, I began to feel definitely that I didn't feel the same person I was beforehand, and it wasn't motherhood, and it wasn't tiredness. I didn't feel like me, and I couldn't put my finger on it. And you know, the the whole time went on that 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 year of of her of her first uh, year of life, and uh, I just couldn't figure out what it was. And then Gary's letter came, and Gary's letter was was very crystal clear you know it was a it it was um a registered letter and it was a letter within a letter um and the outside letter was telling me don't open the inside letter unless you, you know that Gibney did something to you and really really immediately uh I was going to open that inside letter because you know my secret was out and I I was oh my god I couldn't believe how did Gary know this because I didn't know that all the work that Gary had done in the previous two years I had no idea that that this basically been, he had been going around talking to other people yes he had been and just finding amazing. out everything yes he had and he had done you know he had done a lot of of planning and research in what and how he would bring George Gibney down he didn't do it you know, in in a reaction, he just did it. And that's the only way George Gibney would have been toppled, really. You know, Gary, you know, doing what he did uh, was the correct way to do it. Taking his time, getting people together and letting people tell their story um, was exactly the right way to do this. But how he knew that in his early 20s, I mean, a young, a young 22 year old is it's fascinating and, and it's you know, it's it's remarkable. And but anyway, Gary sent me this letter that uh, blew my world apart. And inside it, it was, um, you know, the details that there were other people involved. And then also in that letter, he had um, 
the a, a sergeant's phone number and a name, and he had also a psychologist's phone number and name. So that was the level of care that Gary put into that letter. You know, he didn't, you know, on some level, he obviously knew he was going to blow my world apart. But, uh, and and he left it up to myself then. You know, he never followed up to say, hey, any news? Nothing. It was up to myself. If I did it, I did it. And And uh, you did do it. Trish, did you have a very strong feeling, even though clearly this was opening a Pandora's box that you had kept very tightly shut all those years did you feel immediately your instinct was I'm going to go and tell somebody about it and report George Gibney? Yeah, I I think uh, apart from hiding the letter, running around the house and uh, going into a hole for (laughs) a few weeks uh, um, before even telling Eamon. Yeah, I, I, I think the reality was that as soon as I read other people, that was a that was a sea change for me because, you know, I was I was opening that letter thinking it was all about me. And then it wasn't about me at all. It was about the fact that, you know, this that he was a serial abuser. And I I really took quite some time to get my head around that. Um, like, where did he get the time? How did he do it? Who could it be? Like, was, was it with my friends? Who, you know, oh, it was awful. And I found I was actually incredible. Like some people find it a relief that there's other people. But I was racked with guilt and sorrow that other people would would have had to do even to be kissed by that horrible man. Not to mention the the, the levels of abuse that we now know that he perpetrated on other people. After I was gone, I just thought that was dreadful. But in that, I decided, yes, I would, you know, t- like I told poor Eamon and eventually, uh, you know, very quickly after I told Eamon, I said, I want to go to the guards. And I did go, well, I eventually go to the guards. And um, uh, that was kind of, you know, it should have been a great moment. Go to the guards, put it in their hands. But for me, it was just the the opening of 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 a a very dark tunnel for me personally, and a, a a tunnel that there was light at the end of. But you know, it was a very very difficult time to to face those demons and to remember them. Go to the guards, speak those words that I I I never ever ever spoke to anyone, and I have never spoken to anyone since. Um, and to tell them the details, and to sit there and watch them write those words down, like you know, bad enough I was saying it, but I was watching them write them down, and then they read them all back to me. And it, it was you know any any anyone who's 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 had to do that in the guards, you know, people say, oh, go to the guards, tell your story. It's it's extremely traumatic and difficult to relive, you know, those traumas. And uh, anyone who ever does it is an ex- is very brave. Um, not, I'm not talking about just myself, but I, I do think it's a it's a very and the guards themselves are wonderful. They're amazing. They're well trained and they're very good to you. But at the end of the day, you still have to say the words and you still have to to let them write it down. And then he didn't end up getting uh, he was. <laughs> yeah. You know, so what happened? I mean, after, after all that. Yeah. After all that, um, he got off on a point of law Um, he put forward the defence that it was too long ago time too much time had elapsed for him to provide really an adequate defense i think that's a layman's way of putting it i'm sure it's way more complicated than that and uh, you know my charges went up to under 16 because you don't have to prove rape as such up to 16 so you know even though things went on longer you know it was so that was say 1981 and i brought my charges at in the first the very beginning of january 92 so it's 11 years which is a very short period of time um, and then there was others even less time than mine. To, so to deem that child abuse could not be um, proved 
uh, within a 10 year period is is just was so hard. Can I ask you then, because it just seems to me reading it and, and I've obviously watched this story over the years. I was actually I joined the Sunday Tribune a couple of years after really? Johnny had done the story. So it was a big deal. And Peter Mercer was the editor that um you Heroes. know, that I worked Heroes with don't there. Wear Peter is amazing. <laughs> and Johnny Waterson, incredible journalism that they both did to tell your stories. We'll get to that in a second. But do you feel George Gibney was protected, Trish, by other people? I mean, do you let yourself go there? Because it always seemed to me very strange that he seemed to be protected, maybe in swimming, protected in by legalities and to just not to get away with it. You know, uh I, I've always there's there's parts of my life that I always feel, you know, I know the answers to or I don't know the answers to. And that's one of the things I don't know the answers to. And unless somebody who's an investigative journalist can come back and, and prove it to me, I when I brought my charges against Gibney and I waited and I watched it go through the High Court and the Supreme Court and, you know, the, the magnificent work by the guards and they would reassure us. Always, always, if you had seen my face, it would have been, hmm, we'll see. Because it wasn't, I wouldn't even say protecting Gibney. I would say people were completely beguiled by him, were completely under his spell. And there was a huge number of people couldn't imagine that they had backed the wrong horse, you know, that they could have imagined that this man, this man who, you know, was so passionate about his sport um, had such interest in this, that and the other, that he was capable of this. And I think, you know, they they didn't even want to question it. So he had unquestioning support from a huge number of people. Whether that was enough to get him through the law courts, I could never say. Was um, he religious, Trish, do you remember? Oh, he, he all the old rosary beads were everywhere, you know. I'm just and, wondering, was he, I did, you know, because these people, a lot of that was going on in the church. I was just wondering, was there, could there be connections there in terms of elite sort of people um, looking after each other and protecting each other? Um, I, I'm going off a little bit conspiracy theory you might be hearing. Yeah, I know. And I, I think, I, I mean, we all want to know how and why, you know, maybe it was, you know, a human, human error. I mean, because I, I will put it down to that there was an error made because, you know, subsequently they found out that 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 defence was could, should not have been allowed. So there was an error made. You know, the, the way I looked at it was and the way I've looked at it all my life is somebody somewhere came home from their day in court smiling and celebrating their victory in law that and they maybe came home to families to say, yeah, we got Gibney, Gibney's defence was accepted, or maybe it was the, the, the judges who went home and said, yeah, we got that through. That was the right decision. And they celebrated that. And then if you were to look at it on a movie, you would be looking at me answering the phone, devastated. Sorry, no case to answer. Sorry, we can't bring it to court. You're off. And I, I've often wondered at the humanity of that, like how how could, you know, could they not have just looked at it a little bit closer? Surely they must have seen that that it, it was going to open the doors for every other abuser. You know, like well, what maybe, they that, maybe some people didn't want the doors to be open for every other abuser. Sorry, I just I feel there's a lot more to a lot of these things, especially back then, than we will ever possibly yeah, know. And that's that's we'll, the thing. Will we we'll ever probably know. leave it there Trish, because <laughs> I because I'm going off on another um, 
path that we probably can't go down. What I'd like to ask you then is, I mean, we've t- we've talked about Johnny Waterson and Peter Murphy, who then your statements to the guards and you and other fellow victims, they came out in the, in the Sunday Tribune. That was a huge thing because it meant that, yes, even though we couldn't be charged, the story of what happened to you, even though it was anonymized at that time, they, they used fictitious names for you. It was put out in the public. It meant that the public for the first time knew what had happened. Yes, and people and believed you. I think even more than that, Routine, I think they got to see the horror of the crimes. This wasn't a kiss or a grope. This was, you know, a little nine-year-old child sitting, you know, in a in a dressing room, as 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 you know, perfectly described in the podcast, waiting and waiting for him to come in as a nine year old, and you know the dreadful details that were within that Sunday Tribune article. People were shocked because people did not understand that that anyone was capable of it. But no talk about doing it to children. And I think it was it was a dual effect. I think it was, you know, they were slapped with the yes, this is the man that did this. And he's he he's not the man you think he is. And then it was this is what he did. And I think I think the the horror of the two was enough. I mean, I think it was, you know, it was it was funny. It was the only part of the the book that I really feared going back to to look at. Um, you know, was the actual. I have never ever looked at the pages of the Tribune since uh, since that day that I I looked at it, and I just thought, oh, this is it now. Here's your one. She thinks she's so well. She's going to look at these pictures now, and by God, she's going to be you know, uh, on tablets for life. I actually was surprised. I was I was actually fine about it. But I was stunned when I looked back at it because in my memory, it was a page. And when I looked back and I saw the front page and then the full two inside pages and then another half a page. Oh, merciful hour. I, I could understand why it had blown me away at the time because it was it was an enormous article and it was you know, so nobody could have hidden away from it. You know, you couldn't get away from it and what it said. Yeah. Um, and then if we go on further, uh, you know, you did all that and then carried on with your life. And then Mark Horgan then comes calling <laughs> with his uh, amazing, such a lovely person. I know him a bit because he again, he worked in podcasts in the Irish Times, too. So I, I know Mark a tiny bit and such a, a lovely man and such a great uh, journalist. And he did again, he did he did it so nicely the way he approached you and the way he you you wanted to talk to him and the you're a great part of that amazing podcast that has brought the story right up to date now where George Gibney having uh, fled Scotland where he was he was a coach there as well thank goodness the story going out in the Tribune meant he was no longer doing that but he's in Florida he still got away scot-free with everything except this podcast is least shining the light on him again. So hopefully. Yeah, I think he might have a crick in his neck looking over his back, over his shoulder now. Let's hope so, Trish. Let's hope so. What is your thoughts about George Gibney now? And I know you have an amazing message of hope at the end of this book. So we should talk about that too. But tell us where you are now in terms of when you, you think of that man. Um, well, I suppose uh, the reality is, I uh, and I've, I, I genuinely mean it. I, I do not think of George Gibney very often. George Gibney's crimes against me, I do think of often in the sense that they live with me every day. I detail in the book, you know, allowing my child to go to a music lesson uh, with a man on her own was just monumental for me. Um, uh, 
and lots of small things in a in a day can affect you know can affect me even just if I'm out and there's a car slowing down behind me I I think of the the those times but I rarely think of George Gibney um as a person and as as a man I I, I don't even like to class him as a man because I've met so many lovely men and uh, he's like a, a a reptile compared to to those lovely men but um I suppose I I find that it, for me personally, I love the fact that he lives, you know, over the hills and far away. I would have to go on a plane and I would have to go, you know, to America for starters to to find him and then probably within Florida. So my chances of ever meeting him are hopefully very slim. I have found that very healing over the years because when I did fear cars or anything like that, I knew I could reason with myself. No, no, it is not him. Keep going. You know, don't change your life. And an awful lot of of my healing has been, you know, that it's nearly the competitive thing within me. Get over this hurdle, you know, don't don't let that get the better of you. And it could have been, as I say, as simple as letting my daughter go to a, a, um, a music lesson or even letting my kids go to sleepovers. You know, I didn't I didn't want, want to be that. Club. Join the swimming Joining club. the swimming club. Well, that nearly finished me all together. But as I say, I she did. The, they did join a swimming club, and then I did, and then I went back swimming, and then I went back coaching, and you know. So, uh, to be fair, all the all the big big milestones that I had to 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 climb over, they have given me tremendous reward. They were all worth doing, even with my mum, like making up with my mum, um, everything that I have been that I have done. Because you um, you did tell your mum when it was all coming out when you were going to the guards, you did tell your mother finally what had happened and it wasn't a good response. As so many families find it difficult to accept people's abuse, it's just so horrific for them to think that that was going on and they didn't know. And, and it led to a rift between you and your mum, didn't it? It did. And it was it was an undercurrent. You know, we were anyone looking at us would have thought we had the most lovely relationship. But, you know, it, there was a, a giant, giant wall and we would never cross that line. And then one particular day with the help of uh, Gay Byrne. Helped a lot <laughs> in of the us. Background. <laughs> Everyone has a Gay Byrne story. Um, with the help of Gay Byrne in the background, uh, I did um, make a very very conscious decision to to leave the rift behind me and to just embrace you know a relationship with mum and you know put it behind me you know stop looking stop giving out that she 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 didn't understand at that time and uh, just get over it she didn't react great you know but uh, you know build a bridge really and i uh, it, it it sounds flippant and i did put time and effort into thinking about it but i did you know reach out to mum and you know, mum was very quick to to take my hand straight back and we ended up with oh what I would I would consider it you know a, a most glorious glorious relationship and I had 17 years of that relationship which you know now that she's gone that would have been just so sad if Gibney had won and had taken my mum away from me as well as you know the other th- my childhood. I should just mention the gay burn story because there was a man who'd been abused on the radio. You were sweeping the kitchen and it's very well told where suddenly you're listening to this man expressing the same things that you would have had experienced. And you rang your mum and this is after your sort of rift had happened. And you said to her and your mum just said, I'm listening. And, yeah. and, and she went off. And just to hear those words. Yeah, that and your it, mom it literally was, was as simple as that. 
And like when when mum said, when I, you know, that, that man was just so broken, uh, uh, you know, on the phone and he was so sad. And at the time, that was exactly the rift between me and mum because I had this huge sadness and sorrow inside me. And I only wanted my mum. I had Eamon here. I had everyone. But I wanted my mum to put her arms around me and just hug it out. And uh, when I listened to that man, I just thought, oh, I just want my mum to hear that story. And I and so I rang her and she said, I said, are you listening to the gay? And I didn't say it nicely. I'd say I was, mom, are you listening to the Gay Burn show? And she said, I'm listening. And I said, well, mom, that's me. That's me every day. And she just, yes, I'm listening. And it wasn't that she was saying she was listening to that man. She was listening to me. And honestly, I, I put it, I think, in the book that my the ice around my heart melted in that moment. And I, honestly, I really think that's the best way to put it, because it just it melted so fast. And, uh, you know, mum was back in my life, really, from that moment. It, it was done. We had said our piece. Do you think George Gibney will ever be brought to justice, Trish? I don't know. I really don't. I think I would hope for those who want him to be brought to justice that he can be. I think, you know, a few years ago, there was a, a very strong case made by a very brave young girl um, uh, who detailed to the guards uh, a horrendous rape that was, you know, uh, that he he did rape her um, and um he wasn't extradited. And, you know, that was fresh evidence. And she was so brave to come forward. And it was so important to her. And, you know, I, I to this day, I don't understand the legalities of it, because at the exact same time, another gentleman was extradited for stealing paintings. And, you know, here, how do you marry those two crimes? You extradite one person and you don't extradite the other. So there's a lot of things I don't understand about the George Gibney case and why George Gibney is still in in Florida. And that that girl, you know, oh, my Lord, she so deserved her justice at the time. And she was desperately let down. So, you know, here we are once again with more fresh evidence as a result of the George Gibney. Where's George Gibney podcast by Mark and Kieran. And and so, you know, there's a part of me always hopes for those people. But, you know, I was let down um, that beautiful girl that was raped in Florida was was let down so badly. And uh, I just hope that, you know, maybe the new times uh, that that and I I certainly and I I think it's very important to say, please, if you do wish to tell your secret and, you know, you wanted to go to the guards, please do tell the guards. You know, I'm not saying it's a hopeless case to go to the guards. You know, definitely, definitely, if that is what you want to do, please do go to the guards. They're wonderful. They will do everything they can to help you. And for those coming forward, you know, it, I would love if that's what they want, that George Gibney is extradited. Can you imagine him arriving into the country? Oh, merciful hour. <laughs> a joy. The book is incredible. It's so well written because you did go on to become a writer, a blogger, a columnist with The Examiner. So that's a whole other string to your bow, apart from the swimming and, and being a brilliant mother and all of the rest. But uh, you do have a message of hope because I think it's really important for people to see that after even the worst kind of abuse and treatment and seven years of it here you are with a life full of love and laughter and enjoyment and that there is another place that you can get to could you could you just leave us with that maybe because I I found that quite uplifting at the end of your book yes I I just think you know there was a there was a very very good saying there a few years ago in terms of women's sport 
if you, you can't see it, you can't be it. And really, you know, people today maybe that are going through, you know, hell, they're just in a in a black blind tunnel of hell for whatever, ever reason, you know, and, and in my case, it was abuse. It could be grief. It could be whatever. And and I, I would have had nowhere to look. I, none of my family would have been able to say, you know, Trish, there, look at that girl up there. She, didn't she do very well? My mum, I don't think my mum would have reacted the way she did if she could have if she could have looked over her shoulder and saw somebody who was well with a and a marriage and children and friends and happiness in her life, I, I don't think my mum would have feared my future. And I just would, would really sort of say to, to brothers and sisters who are who are supporting their families or mothers who are supporting their daughters or, or fathers, you know, anybody who's going through it, you know, look, there are there are I, you can see me, but honestly, there's a lot more than me out there. We've worked very hard. We're doing well. And, uh, you know, hope, I think, you know, I think a friend of mine says it very, very well. She says hope, hope comes in many forms and we keep changing hope. So hope might be to heal or hope might just be to feel better and, and just keep hoping. Well, Trish, thank you very much. You did change your name as well. I should mention that so, that so that he wouldn't track you down. Your name is T-R-I-C. T-R-I-C is how I'm usually known. Uh, my kids are wondering who wrote that other book <laughs> because it's T-R-I-S-H. But T-R-I-C leads to people just thinking I'm Trick Carney, but it is Trish Carney. And I just, I always had it that if ever George Gibney came looking for me, he would, number one, I wasn't Patricia McCahill anymore, although I'll always be McCahill in my heart. But uh, he he wouldn't find Trish Carney and if he did find Trish Carney it was TRIC so he'd really have to be looking to find me but then in 2018 when when I came out I kind of became less precious about him finding me I just thought you know what come look as a friend of mine said could she ask Mark for for Gibney's address because she has a very good book she'd like to send him (laughs) okay well I think that's a great way to end it it's been absolutely amazing talking to you Trish I'm so grateful to you and everyone who speaks up about this stuff because it helps it helps it helps so many people and it's the only way forward you have nothing to be ashamed of it's George Gibney that has all the shame and he deserves all the shame so um thank you very much for coming on the and and so lovely to talk to you thanks a million take care now That was Trish Carney there and although the book is a harrowing read in parts, it's beautifully written and a really important, ultimately hopeful story which I highly recommend. It's called Above Water. Thanks very much for listening. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Get in touch with us on email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com about anything you'd like us to cover or contact us on our social channels at IT Women's Podcast. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.